0: I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which I am recording, the Wadi Wadi people of the Dharawal Nation, acknowledging their elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge those listeners with lived experience in mental ill health and suicide. I extend this to those families, friends and carers who might be breathing a loss through suicide. As part of our research partnership with the University of Sydney, and the second instalment to last week's episode with Dr Hayley Lamonica about the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre Youth Model. This week, I spoke with the formidable Associate Professor Elizabeth Scott, whose clinical career is as long as Santa's list. Liz and I spoke quality mental health care for young people, particularly what this looks like in this day of covid Remember, if you are aged between 16 and 25, you can participate in this co-creation by following the link in the show notes to fill out a 10-minute survey on the personal experiences you may have in mental health care as a young person. In this episode, we talk all things mental health related, particularly during this time of COVID. If you or someone you know needs help in their mental health journey, please contact Lifeline on one three one 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 four. Well, thank you, Liz, for joining me today and chatting a little bit more about what quality care for young people looks like when accessing mental health care in Australia. I figured we would jump straight in and ask you a bit of a hard hitting question of what the state of mental health was, presentations um, and the sort and help seeking prior to COVID since COVID has been this major disruptor.
1: Sam, I just want to say, Sam, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your podcast series, which has been so inspiring. So I feel very privileged to be um, in the studio with you today. And these are the major issues that are facing young people in our community, as you know, and all your listeners would be aware of. So it's also a great privilege for me to talk about that and i feel i'm a bit i'm almost talking on behalf of young people which at my age is probably not a great place to be but i have had a lot of experience in working with young people and also in bringing up young people and now grandchildren so i feel i've got you know some lived experience myself and also a kind of wealth of clinical experience and and really in the last probably the last decade i wish it had been longer in working with young people with lived experience as part of the work that we do and that has been such a rewarding and valuable experience in learning much more about how we can do things better so so my comments today are really framed on my what the value and the the expertise that has come from the young people like yourself and our lived experience group and the patients and clients and the families that i see every day who from whom i learn in response to your question, what were things like prior to COVID? They were pretty bad, as you probably are aware yourself and the Victorian Royal Commission really highlighted. We've had several nations in Australia, as you know, which have all said that things are dire in terms of mental health services, particularly for young people, and lots of things came out of that, like Headspace and Better Access. And so we've seen some initiatives in Australia, but they really reflect the fact that there was a huge gap in services, a huge area of need for young people. Teenage, adolescence is the time when these conditions start. So we were already seeing prior to COVID an increase in presentations for young people with higher rates of psychological distress, higher rates of presentation with self-harm, increasing rates of suicide. And to put that in perspective, mental health problems are the leading causes of death and disability in young people. So as you know, we build large children's hospitals to look after other childhood illnesses and disorders. put together teams and the same teams that are all around the country so young people have access access to expert care if they have physical health conditions if they have cancer or leukemia or other very serious and distressing conditions we have not done the same with mental health and if anything comes out of a crisis it is the opportunity to do things better to really respond and my hope is that young people will be the will be the front guard they will be the the advocators, they will be the people who will demand change and better service and that we will get change out of this process. So, um, increase, we were already seeing increased rates of psychological distress. There was a big study that was published um, this year that put together, brought together a lot of evidence from about 80,000 young people and various studies that showed that there'd been almost a twofold increase in the rates of depression, anxiety, psychological distress. So about one in four young people were experiencing depression. One in five young people were were experiencing anxiety. So that is really significant. And we saw, and I think Joe Robinson on one of your other um, uh, sessions probably talked about this, increased rates of presentations to emergency departments for young people with self-harm and suicidal thoughts and behaviours about a 47% increase in New South Wales over the last two years, so this is pre-COVID, and similar rates in Victoria and other other parts of the country. So now we add COVID to that. So (laughs) we've had climate change, we've had bushfires, we've had increased pressure on young people. Now we throw in a major global pandemic just to really, I don't know, just to really kind of,
0: Spice things
1: up. Spice things up. That's a very good, yeah, spice things up. (laughs) And that obviously has put a huge amount of stress on a system that was already in serious disorder. There were huge cracks in the system, long waiting lists, parts of the country where it was really hard to access any care, very limited care when you got there, very inefficient forms of care. Care was often very short-term. And a lot of the research that we've done through Brain and Mind showed that even when people did get to care, often the outcomes from the types of care that people received were not that good. And we know a lot about why that probably didn't work so well, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. But so the system was already in great difficulty. And now what we hear from services on the ground, and I'm involved in in working in some of those services, is that they are overwhelmed. So there are very high rates of young people Looking for seeking care, there are so the the demand has come up, gone up enormously. The supply is the same, basically as it always has been, and that is a serious issue for young people and their families, people seeking care, and for the services that are trying to meet the demand. And a lot of the government responses, it's good to see they have responded. They recognise that this is a issue, and I think a lot of young people have spoken out. There's been a lot of support from the media. But a lot of money has gone into helplines, community awareness, which is all very well, but it doesn't help the services on the ground where young people go, right, okay, I'm putting my hand up, I need care, where is it? Like, where are you? You know, help me. And we don't have a lot of um, options to respond to that. So
0: I guess knowing and hearing that, during this time of COVID and all of its uncertainty, the the service, like you were saying, the service provisions and their capacity is just overflowing uh, in response to, well, not overflowing positively, but overflowing in, in lack of ability to to cope with the surge. What does that mean for young people from what you've seen attempting to access or finally accessing some form of Quality care, or or even not quality care, just some form.
1: So I think it leads to a lot of confusion. A lot of, well, I've I've accessed a helpline. I know I'm struggling, or families know I'm struggling, or my friends know I'm struggling, and so they've you know advised me to you know seek help. But then there's very short term counselling support. But really, then where do you go? Like like what's next? And we say to people, we'll go talk to your GP. And GPs are very, you know, now, you know, much better informed about mental health. They're much better at able to, you know, triage people, try and figure out what people need, but they don't have anywhere to send people to. So we hear from young people that they get stuck on waiting lists or they see somebody briefly, but there's no follow up. There's no ongoing care or that the care they receive doesn't really address the problems that they have. They go to present to an emergency department. Somebody sees them and says, I've seen 10 people like you today. So don't feel you're on your own, you know, but you have to go home because there's nothing else that we can do. I mean, that's not comforting. If I was a young person, I wouldn't, you know, no, I would feel I was alarmed. Say that. Yeah. I don't know what you feel, Sam, but yeah. that wouldn't, that wouldn't, you know, fill me with any great kind of encouragement. So I think young people themselves are really struggling. Headspace services have very long waiting lists and a lot of them struggle with workforce. They don't have a lot of skilled workforce or people with different sets of skills that young people need or the community partnerships to be able to provide all the services that young people need. So often people spend a long time on waiting lists and then drop out, you know, know, kind of give up. So by the time they get to be seen, you know, things have changed or they've just got disillusioned with care. And I know that GPs that I work with really struggle to find, you know, places for people, for young people to go to. And our our EDs and hospitals are not the places for young people to receive. They're good in a crisis and they're absolutely vital in a crisis if some if you have suicidal ideation, if you're really at risk, if you're seriously unwell, that they're not places really to look for ongoing care or long-term care. That's not what they're set up to do. So so it it is a major struggle. If I might say, Sam, we, we kind of predicted that this was going to happen. So just in the same way that you could model what was going to happen with infections. You could see the surge, you could see the curve go up. We, through the Brain and Mind Centre and other organisations in Australia and around the world, did the same thing with mental health. You could predict that there would be a surge in cases from distress, anxiety, from economic downturn, from social dislocation, disconnection, disruption of schools, disruption to families, a whole series of things that impact on people's mental health. And not only could you predict it, you could predict that it would go on for a long time. It wasn't just getting the vaccination rate up or, you know, getting the infections under control. These have these have long-term effects. So it has been predicted and there's been time to think about what to do, how to meet the surge, how to meet the demand.
0: It is actually quite incredible knowing that we can predict those sorts of things. And, and during this time, I, I we've been, or we've become familiar with those what-if scenarios that COVID has presented us from the perspective of if we were to wear masks, if we were to socially distance, if we were to gain the vaccine, this is what the number rates and the the coin term flattening of the curve would look like. And I think it was last year, the there was a tangent of flattening the curve which was flatten the mental health curve and directly relates to this whole concept of the surge and the years after and sometimes some of the presentations not actually coming up at the moment but coming up a bit later than than the actual COVID um pandemic and it's it's unrest happening
1: yeah so i i mean one of the good things. There are good things and bad things about that. The good thing is, we've had time to think about how to manage that. You know, what are that we've seen how other countries have responded. So we've had time to think about our own health system and how we might respond. I think we've been a bit slow, I have to say, to act. And I and I think partly because last year we thought we had it all under control. You know, we we thought we had it contained. We thought it was all it was all good. So no, don't panic. You know, no reason. To respond. Well, public health pandemics are not like that. You kind of have to be ready. Like we had to be ready and anticipate that there might be another wave. There might be another, there might be another variant. Just like we should, we should be ready for that. We needed to be ready for a, a mental health surgeon. I have to say that we were not, but we've got a pretty good idea from modeling. As you say, you can actually model. What would you do if you, if you let, JobKeeper run for longer, if you let it run till March 2022, what would it be like if you provided education support to young people? What would it be like if you put more money into mental health, specialised community-based mental health services? What would it be like if you employed digital technologies to provide young people with better access to care? What would it be like if you provided better aftercare for young people presenting with self-harm and suicidal thoughts and behaviours? So we know that those are the key components of actually responding to the mental health surge, and we are starting to see slowly a shift in the government to putting some of those things into practice. But we could always do better. We could have done it in the same. Can I say the same coordinated care we've dealt with COVID coronavirus? I don't know that. I don't know we've dealt dealt with that very well. Sam, Well, we? I
0: don't, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say maybe last year, this year I would say that we're on par. We've taken a step yes. back. That the COVID care coordination is very much with the the mental health presentation. So. Right, so we could
1: do it in the same disorganized way. <laughs>
0: but yes, but we need to get.
1: This is, you know, these are about young people's lives. You know, this is your life. This is my kid's life. This is my grandchildren's life. You know, this is about people in our community. You know, these are people's lives that, and livelihoods that we're talking about. This is about thriving and surviving in the community. And as a community, will we be judged on how we care for and, and look after the most vulnerable people in our community and how we work together? So there are great opportunities as a community to get it right and to learn from that. And that will help us with the future crises that we know we're going to face, like climate change and the next set of bushfires, we know we're going to have to deal with it. So we, so we can learn from this. So I think that's the good thing that will come out of it. And my faith is in young people that you young people are smart. You're digitally smart. You know how to connect with each other. You know how to organize yourself. You are going to so do such a better job than we have done. So that that's no pressure, Sam, but that's my hope.
0: Yeah, (laughs) hopefully. (laughs) I mean, it's, it has been incredibly, uh, inspiring and empowering to see young people in their adaptability today and their their ways of being able to sit HSC exams and still conduct themselves in university and playing online games with each other while zooming or watching movies together so that there is that social interaction it has been incredibly yeah inspiring to actually see that so that I I hundred percent believe that the, the next generations will really hold the key to somewhat tailoring mental health care. You mentioned before about uh, varying forms of health care um, tied to mental health, and last week we heard from Hayley about the Brain and Mind Centre Youth Model and how it is holistic and and multi-dimensional from the perspective of looking at physical health and uh, education and, and well-being, if I can somewhat repeat my question, what does quality care look like, I guess, particularly during this time of COVID when there is that surge um, and that high need for, for quality care and, and somewhat adapted multidisciplinary care?
1: So our model has been, as Hayley probably said, is right bright care first time. So we want people not to wait and to go through different levels of care to get to the right care. We want them to get to the right care first. And there are various characteristics of services. So services need to be engaging. They need to have, you know, the right kind of branding to put in a marketing to let young people know that they are likely to get care there and likely to get care that suits their needs. There's something that service offering something that the young person wants. So they have to be set up in a way to make things accessible for young people. And we think digital technologies are the way that young people orientate their world, navigate their world. And so we need to use technology in smarter ways to allow young people better access into care. And we need to make sure that those services are offering the care that young people need, what we call personalized care. So, when we talk about personalized medicine, people think it means figuring out what your genotype is and then delivering the right drug or, you know, at the right, you know, but so that's kind of personalized medicine or precision medicine. What, what we mean by that is it's the care that you need, it's not the care that traditionally what's happened is the care that the service provides. Well, we're good at providing psychological therapies and CBT, or we're good at providing peer support, or we're good at providing um, vocational rehabilitation or drug and alcohol services. What young people want is a service that says, right, well, this is what you need at this point in time. And we are going to work with our service or with our partners to make sure that you get the care that you need now, not sit on a wait list. If you need to sit on if you are on a waiting list to see somebody face to face, what are the things that we can do online or digitally? How can we support you or your family in the meantime through using smart technologies and other and other kind of options to actually provide care when you need it and escalate care if your need for care increases, if your risk increases, if the severity of your symptoms increase, if your circumstances change so that we can escalate care. So the door, the door, the door by which you come into a service, needs to be not one door but multiple ways, multiple portals, so that there are there are many different ways of accessing care, depending on who you are and where you are, and that's particularly true, obviously, for people in regional, rural Australia, people from different communities, you know, who who really want different things from services, so they need to be flexible. The other thing about personalised care is that you need to think about the domains that are really important. In clinical services, we tend to focus on symptoms. Well, what are the symptoms that you have today? Are you pressed? Are you anxious? Are you are you not sleeping? You know, have you got psychotic symptoms? Maybe, you know, what, what, what have you got? But what we also really want to know is, well, not only how are you sleeping, but what are your exercise and activity levels like? What's your physical health like? Are you using drugs and alcohol? Are you able to go to school or go to work? Are you able to see your friends and participate socially? So we want to know all of those things and help you with those areas that are most important to you. So it may be, and people say this to me all the time, it's not my mood or it's not my, it's not my, you know, psychotic symptoms or it's not, it's actually the fact that I can't get up and go to work or I can't see my friends or I'm I'm locked in my room all day and I can't get out of my room. That's I just want to be able to get out of my room or you know, want to be go back to be able to go back to playing sport. So we need to think about all of those domains. Not only ask people young people young people about them because we're good at asking the questions, but we have to do something about them. We have to actually provide an intervention that helps people function. So very much based on getting people back into being able to function and participate. And the other thing that's important is we have a very diagnostic-based system. So what's your diagnosis? And what's really important, not necessarily your diagnosis, but what stage of illness are you at? What stage are you at in your condition? Are you at an early stage? Are you at a transition into a more serious form of your your condition? Or are you needing more kind of long-term care, chronic care? And we tend to say everybody's got depression or anxiety, but... That's a huge, it's like saying everybody's got heart disease or everybody's got cancer. So broad and it doesn't help services actually decide where you are and what you need and how long for and at what level of intensity. So good care, part of the model that we run is really about what stage of illness are you at and then what trajectory. And we use the analogy of cancer and I use the analogy of breast cancer because I've had breast cancer, so I know all about that. And it's a very good analogy because the condition that I have is very different to the woman down the road and the treatment that I get, therefore, is is quite different, but we've got the same diagnosis. And what we want to do is understand what are the personal, what are the characteristics of the difficulties that you have? What treatment are you likely to respond to? And over what time do we need to monitor things to make sure that you're Back on track and you 've recovered, and that you're going to stay well so and to use again to use digital technologies to help us do that to make things more efficient because we are never going to meet the demand by face to face interventions for all of those things we need to use smart technologies just as we couldn't have everybody turning up to the bank to take money out of the bank. you know we have to use we have to use other forms of technology to be able to deliver quality care. The good thing about that is then services are accountable. You know whether you're getting all of those things, whether you're getting better. So you can provide feedback to the service pretty quickly and they're accountable and saying, well, my, my sleep's no better or I'm not back at school or I'm not back at work or, you know, I'm still struggling with anxiety. What, what do we do next? So... That's a long-winded answer, Sam. But those are the things that really people should expect from accessibility, having access to care when they need it, where they need it, the place where they are, not having to travel hundreds of kilometres, as some people do, or wait long periods of time for appointments and then get told they're in the wrong place, they've come through the wrong door, you needed the door down the road. This is, you know, and you have to start all over again. So vexing. So frustrating. And to make sure that the service that you get targets your needs and is effective. And if it's not, why not?
0: Mm. It was uh, a really interesting point that you made just before around uh, somewhat marketing. How do we present this? And as we are ever growing to be a visually or aesthetic-based society through platforms like Instagram, TV series that are just that, like Euphoria that present yeah, suffering even in the most beautiful romanticized way. It it is so pertinent the way that we actually present this information and these quality elements of care. And um, and I think that that was that was a point that I really wanted to highlight as well. And when when it comes, I guess. One of the things you were saying was when it comes to young people uh, understanding what their rights are, I guess, uh, from uh, uh, accessing uh, quality mental health care. It's so important. And we heard about that last week with Hayley, that uh, there is a it's under construction and, and the um, hopefully we get to actually see what young people want from the surveys that we're doing um, through the podcast and, and the Brain and Mind Centre. that there is an education and training module tailored to young people that is being built, that's tailored to young people and what they should be expecting, like you said, and what when they can feedback or why they should feedback in, in their level of care to their, their clinician, whoever it might be, or even their service provider as well. So they were, they were really great points that I, I wanted to highlight again, when it comes to COVID at the moment, and, uh, again, I acknowledge that prior to COVID there was just as an existential crisis when it comes to mental health. When it comes to COVID and you were mentioning things like uh, physical exercise and seeing friends and alcohol and drug abuse and, and or use, what not only needs to be done differently from a clinician perspective, but what can young people do during COVID where it is uh alcohol is much more of a temptation you 're not actually going to work or school and and seeing your friends as often. Your only social interactions are with people at the supermarket in passing or a or a barista <laughs> through a mask and those sorts of elements of holistic care are somewhat missing i guess what can what can we do as young people and what can clinicians do to support young people in this? this shift?
1: So some of the most important things, I'm sure there's a lot of discussion about it in the media, but I just wanted to highlight it again, that maintaining a daily routine is really important. Even my 16 year old son has kind of figured this out for himself. If he, if he gets up and he has breakfast before he starts school and then he gets outside at lunchtime. And if he gets out after school is finished and, and you know, walks around the block or walks the dog or you know goes for a run or gets on his bike or plays a game of tennis you know he feels better and he'll sleep better so it is it is really important to maintain a daily routine that involves outdoor activity so we have a, a clock that sits in our head the clock we have to reset every day this is the change of season going into spring when we have to the light changes really quickly and we have to really Make sure that we do set our clock. Otherwise, people get tired and ratty. They get irritable and and stressed, and people are already stressed. So actually getting up in the morning. Mm,
0: I can vouch for that. (laughs) It's
1: true for all of us. This has been going on for a long time, and it's just disheartening to watch the numbers every day, although they did seem to be slightly better today, but it's very disheartening. Yeah, they did. They did. Encouragement, (laughs) encouraging. Um, But it's really important to try and get up. A, and I've seen the shift in kids going to school and also people going to work. They tend to get up, you know, 10 minutes before they have to get onto Zoom or their first meeting starts. So, you, you know, you can sleep in and and then to work a little bit later or to, you know, to or to stay up a little bit later. And that increases rates of psychological distress, It disrupts your brain clock. It's not good for your metabolism. It has a whole lot of Consequences not good for your immune system, and it's certainly not good for your friends and family that you have to live with or share space with. So, just getting up early in the morning. I'm sure the dog would appreciate it. Get up walk the dog in the morning. Make sure you have breakfast. Get out again at lunchtime. So we say 20 minute minimum. 20 minutes outside and active in the morning, at lunchtime, and then in the afternoon helps you set your clock every day, and that should be the minimum the more time you can get out and be active. I know that's really difficult for some people who are in places where there is limited kind of, you know, exercise or activity. But, you know, get out on your balcony, open your window, get some fresh air, try and look at the horizon, try and look at some, you know, some space so that you don't feel so closed in and locked up all the time, locked in all the time, because that's not good for for our mental health and well-being. Staying connected with people is obviously really important. And and that's why it is important to go and get your coffee and talk to the barista or the person that you pass in the street to say hello to or the person in the dog park or make sure that you talk to friends if you're walking, try and walk and talk and be, you know, connected to somebody, talk to somebody on the phone or be at least, you know, participational activity to make sure that you stay connected planning something to look forward to i know that's really tough in covid but young people are very creative and i've seen some really creative things and even for people of our age sam you'd be horrified but myself and ian hickey were on the <laughs> over 60 zoom dance community dance class <gasps> dance you know on saturday that's awesome one saturday it was horrifying but but um I- Oh. Children were so embarrassed. my children were so embarrassed they refused to participate is but
0: there video footage
1: there is no video footage None. None.
0: <laughs> what a disappointment
1: <laughs> very yes but you know desperate desperate times desperate times call for desperate measures but young people are very creative at staying connected the worst thing is to have this kind of sense of learned helplessness you know each time you know another day goes on and you know the further you know restrictions or it looks like it's continuing to go people miss out on things you know kids miss out on school they miss out on birthdays they miss out on parties concerts you know traveling doing stuff with friends you know all the things you know anniversaries of things stuff that people you know young people that's what gives them hope that's what they look forward to that's what makes them feel good about the world You know, as you get older, you can't get used to disappointment and missing out on things. But for young people, it's you know, these are (laughs) – I don't want to put you off, but, you know, know, as you get older, you you become more resilient to that. I really feel for young people who just are missing out, you know, missing out on stuff at school, missing out on uni or missing out on working with people in the workforce or just being able to get out and exercise, take their surfboard, go surfing, you know, see their partners – you know meet people on you know date people go out do stuff that they would normally do so try and plan try plan something that you would enjoy and try some things that you've never tried before that you might enjoy so you know, if you if you've never ridden a bike try and get out on your bike or a skateboard or obviously don't injure yourself no one will and, see you
0: no one's outside uh, so that's good
1: that's true okay and i apologize to parents if i've people off on dangerous activities <laughs> but you know, try things. You know, try things. You know, modelling with clay, doing some artwork or some creative work, make some short movies. You know, do try some things that you've never done before. The worst thing is this kind of sense of hopelessness. Well, there's no point doing anything because you know it'll just get cancelled. What are the other things that I could do? What are the other things that I can do with my friends? And as clinicians, we need to be supporting young people to do those things and their families. We've also, in youth services, not been very good at supporting people's families, I and mean, it is families that support young people, especially at the moment. So we need to be much better at supporting families, giving families better education, better resources, linking, making sure that people get linked into their community organisations so even if you can't play basketball, you know, sporting associations can still put on community activities that people can participate in, that they can do at home, and, you know, and, and making sure that people stay connected. So my advice to young people is get creative, stay connected. Young people are really good at doing that. Social media is really good at assisting people. We hear a lot of bad things about social media, but this is one of the things, the gifts, you know, that, that maybe
0: it's all been building up for now.
1: (laughs) That's right. Exactly. Exactly. We're just waiting for this moment moment to arrive. Yes. (laughs) Um, And, and to, and But if you're not okay or you know your friend's not okay or you know somebody in your family is not okay, then support them to get help. Um, Put them in, you know, give them, you know, ideas about where to go or how to find help and make sure that they get it. Make sure that they get it and help them get the right care first time. So we can be an advocate for ourselves but also for other people and in health It's really important to have an advocate in the health system. Somebody else who goes along and says, but hang on, you know, is this it, Can't you know, or this is not working? Is there something better? Is there something more that we can do? I just want one other comment is often if people don't get better, there's a kind of sense of, well, it's my fault. I haven't been doing something right. I haven't been practicing the skills or I should be trying harder or I should have done this or, and that, and then, and then a tendency to kind of withdraw or shut down or you know, give up. So I'd encourage young people that absolutely we as clinicians service providers, we need to do better. We need to be working with you to say, hang on, what what are we both? What are we, we what are we not doing right? What have we missed? What can we do better? How can we so don't 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 accept that there's not more that can be done or this is as good as it gets. We've seen in other areas where young people have stood up and said this is not okay, this is not good enough, we expect more, we expect change. This is one of those areas where it's really important for young people to to, to demand more and to demand better.
0: That's so important, and I think one of the key things you mentioned was not only helping a, a, f- a friend, a family member, whoever it might be, access mental health care or or see where mental health care is for them but also making sure that they follow through with it and following up on them to making to make sure that they're getting the right quality care and the right care for them in their current time with uh like you were saying before their their clinical needs somewhat and making sure that that is Somewhat holding you know as a as a bystander i 'm not a fan of the term innocent bystander, but I think that uh, is what what you 've been saying is is family members and friends have a key role in the support mental health care support of their fellow young people in the sense of making sure that they are getting the quality care and if they're not challenging their clinician getting encouraging them to challenge their clinician to work out what their goals are and why they aren't reaching their goals and what they could be doing better. And I think that that's almost a perfect segue to ask, what does quality mental health care change for young people receiving it? What what does it do from that perspective? And I think we've roughly talked on it uh, before, but what what are some explicit things that young people can see change if they were to access quality mental health care
1: so you're right to be i mean it's, to be explicit it should be engaging so it should be the service that engages you you shouldn't feel that you're lucky to have got there you should feel that the service is lucky to have you that you know that they, that they are there to serve you to provide you with care so it, and it should be engaging it should be about you know, what can we do for you? How can we help you? How can we work with you? So it should be collaborative. So if it's not about, well, tell me what your goals are and tell me what your priorities are. And even if that's something that we can't deal with at the moment, because this is our limitation, but you need to know why, and you need to know what the rationalization for that is. And you need to know if there's better treatment somewhere else. Well, you know, does somewhere else offer me that care? So it should be collaborative. And the collaboration should start from the beginning and it should be there right through your journey. And it should be empowering. It should empower young people to not only take, you know, control of their lives and to manage their mental health, but also to be able to stand up and say, if something is not going okay, if something is not right, or they feel that, you know, they you know something should be done better or they need more. So I think those are the those are the kind of the key concepts. Have I missed something else, Sam, Is it something from, a, from your perspective, do you think?
0: I think that's what you've said is incredibly important. And I think one of the key things that really plays into an individual's complex, and I know this from firsthand experience, at not just myself, but those that are around me when accessing mental health care, and like you said before, is if it doesn't work out or if they're not seeing results as such, there is very much that complex of it must be my fault, and and we don't go to the we don't go outside of that and actually ask. Well, not to point fingers, but is this service engaging enough with me? Is there is that is there that co-driving of what I need to receive as in line with what I want to receive? And I think that's I think that's a really great point, um, particularly for young people accessing mental health care generally, but then also during this time of COVID, when things are just, like you said, there's nothing to look forward to. And so perhaps this is, you know, one of those great things of implementing some mental health and wellness from that perspective as well. So I think, yeah, absolutely hit the nail on the head, from my opinion, at least.
1: (laughs) Some of the other things about that, again, I think we've touched on, but, you know, we need to involve young people in their community so we need to involve families we need to involve their friends and social networks their school their you know their places where they you know they work or study or or play so to make sure that they have support in in those areas and in general one clinician is not going to do it we know that people get better quality care if they see more than one person we need to use peer support workforces much more than we do and that's you know an, an issue of our funding system it's you know we 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 are not supporting peer support workforces as at the moment as much as we should and i think that's something that will really help to transform mental health services and that will be again part of the empowerment you know involving people with lived experience in helping to support others i think will have be go a long way to reduce stigma and to improve empowerment and support for people trying to navigate healthcare systems and to navigate their way through to recovery. And we also need to involve young people much more in the design and delivery and the evaluation of the services that we provide. They need to be embedded in heart and soul to make make sure that we are doing our job properly. And that I think is Improving, I don't know what you think. Sam it's getting better, but we are long. We're, we're a long way from really supporting, though. You know the, that contribution in 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 real life. I think so. I think many people talk about it, and you know, but but we we need to live it, and we need to we need to really do better with that. And and the and the technology aspect is really key. We are so bad at putting technology into healthcare. We are so bad at it, partly because of people like myself. Years we're behind. Years, we are years behind, <laughs> that's right. If young people were designing the system, they would design it completely, you know, a really, a really different system. You know, by the time they designed it, they would have moved on to the next one, you know. So, you know, we, we really, we so need to, Im- you know, involve young people in, the, in the, not only in the co-design, but also the smart design. Of the of the work that we do, and this again is an opportunity. We have such a great opportunity. The government will put in more money. We need them to put money into smart things, you know, things that will really be innovative and make a difference, and not just put money into the same things that we know are inefficient and not engaging or empowering or not collaborative and and really are not never going to meet the demand. So this is our opportunity. So get out there, and young people, and. Demand more protest.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and I think when you were mentioning before about working with young people and the fact that care can actually re- exponentially change what uh, their their recovery process if there is multifaceted or mu- uh, a number of sort of clinical help individuals, clinicians helping individuals rather. And, and particularly empowering those communities from a grassroots level. And I think one of the things that we often miss, particularly in research and then as that research informs policy and then production is the diversity and, and particularly for BIPOC individuals where there are major cultural differences to the westernized world or the westernized uh, set of interventions that, don't work or, or almost don't work um, from sort of adhering to cultural traditions and norms and things like that. And so it's absolutely a need for not only your, your general youth, but also those youth who are part of those more minority groups that they've, their clinical support isn't necessarily tailored to what they're, they could be receiving i guess what are some questions that young people can be asking when it comes to quality care and receiving quality care and i guess establishing those those mental health care goals with their clinician it's such a broad spectrum and and arguably an unknown area where it's like oh i want this or i want that how how can young people help themselves by narrowing that down to what their, their key goals are?
1: It's such a, it's such a good question, Sam. And and it was highlighted to me recently by a young person with lived experience. who would actually worked in the mental health sector herself saying, even though she'd worked in that sector for a long time and um, from, from a kind of, you know, on the other side of the, the desk, you know, helping young people access care, When it came to her own care she didn't know what she needed so she still found it really hard to articulate she still felt very intimidated and you know scared about the process and she found it really hard to know what it was that she wanted so when she saw a doctor who said oh well you need this she went oh okay but actually okay
0: i'll I'll take that (laughs) that's
1: right okay that if that's what i need then then i'll take it but actually it was a whole complex situation about her personal history and her and things that she needed to deal with that just didn't get addressed in that process. And, and you know, so, so sometimes I think it's really hard for young people to know. They know they're distressed. They know they're in trouble. They know they need help. They don't necessarily know what that looks like, what it is that they need. So if somebody says, oh, well, what you need is CBT or what you need is this medication or actually you don't need anything because there's nothing really wrong with you, you know, cause you don't meet the criteria for this diagnosis or that. Whereas the young person goes, I oh, know there's something wrong with me cause I'm not doing the things that, you know, I want to do. Then it's really confusing. And I, you know, I think the answer to that is to be as informed as possible, talk to other young people. It's often there's often a wealth of knowledge within people's social network, people who've had experience or have had family members or there's somebody in the community or an aunt or an uncle or somebody that you can talk to who's been through the process, who's got some idea about what has helped and also what has not helped and, and sometimes to take a person with you. So when you're really distressed and really upset, you can't necessarily articulate what it is that you want, but another person can say, look, this is what's happening and this is what I think is important and maybe, you know, this, you know, this, you know, these are the things that we need to address, even if you don't agree with it, at least it starts the conversation. It's, it's a starting point for the conversation. So I think it's it's hard to know. If, if you do know what you want, then just being very clear about your goals. My goals are, and we are trying to, as part of our education, educate clinicians to start off with, what are your goals? And not just what are your goals? And I'll we'll write it down mm. in the file and then I'll go and do whatever I was going to do in the first place. But <laughs> actually, what are your goals and how can we meet them? And to set up, actually, this is the goal the young person has identified and this is how we're going to try and address them and to put it in writing and to make the plan with the young person. So if it is to get back to school or if it is about sleep or it is about social networks or social connectedness or it is about my, you know, my, my, Physical activity, or my weight, or you know my eating. Then what is it that? How are we going to address that? What if we're not going to do it now? Then what are we going to do in the future that's going to address it so that we can come back to it? If we haven't, you know, if you haven't dealt with it, then it's there in writing. So try and get a plan in writing. Make it collaborative. If you if you miss out on the things that are important to you, go back in the next session and say, I I just, you know, I've this is my list of things that I want to deal with. Can we do, can we do that first before I, before I, you know, things get lost track. So writing things down, making a list, thinking in advance about what it is that you want to get from it out of the, you know, out of the treatment that you're getting. And that, to think, you know, who else is in the team? Who, what are the things? If you are only seeing one person, what might you be missing out on by only seeing that person and, What are the alternatives? What are the other options?
0: Mm. That's so brilliant to hear. And I think for myself, and I know a number of other individuals around me who have sought help and and seek help regularly, jotting down those things that you want to achieve through this process to recovery, uh, no matter how far off they seem or how small they seem, it's so important, particularly because you might, you often go into a session and you're not sort of aware of anything. You sort of often caught last minute off guard and you turn up and you might be thinking about it in the weight room. But then when you're in there, it's almost like cotton mouth flutter and you kind of like, Oh yeah, we'll go about this. And it helps. I find that it helps me and, and potentially others, uh, keep it on track from a perspective of like these are the things that I want to talk about or these are the things that I want to address and how are we going to address that you're the expert in the room and and I you know am co-driving this with you and I, and I you know these are the things that are uh, my concerns are important to me which sometimes a clinician might not know if it is something you know like weight or it is something like exercise that might not be an obvious thing for example it it is definitely one of those things that that you need to make sure that yeah that pathway is is co-produced and co-driven by yourself and and your clinicians
1: yeah just just on that you're both you're both you are the expert you're both the experts you know and sometimes a young person is more has more expertise you know you know because in the sense that you know they know you know they they know themselves and they know what is going on and one of the things that we risk is not listening we're already making up our minds as clinicians about what we're going to do or what the outcome is going to be and actually not listening and i'm as guilty of that as anybody so i, I am trying to and i still make mistakes trying to be better at listening and not making assumptions so you are the expert, you are the other expert, at least equal expert in the room.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's actually a really wonderful point to, to emphasize is you are the other expert in the room. Like you're the one dealing with it on the daily basis. You're the one that knows what it makes you, what a thought or an action might make you feel, all of that. And And the clinician can't walk in your shoes or play back a highlights reel of the week um, or anything like that. It's definitely, yeah, a collaborative process. So one last question before you go, where can we find more information, not just about the BMC model, but also about quality care in general and and that sort of multifaceted holistic care?
1: Sam, that is a very good question because I'm so Origin Youth Health, I would absolutely say, because they are, you know, co-invested in, you know, providing this same kind of multidisciplinary care. So – but – and obviously the brain, you know, the BMC and the BMC model, we've talked about this a lot, but there hasn't been as much emphasis in mental health as there should be. So I think the other thing is, you know, podcasts like this, you know, young people, I'd encourage young people to, if they think they've got a good service, you know, you know, to put up a blog or to, you know, to write about it, to put it up on social media, you know, to develop a bank, you know, a bank of knowledge about, you know, what, what works, what doesn't work for young people, because that will drive change, you know, that will, you know, people will, we hope, respond to, you know, the, the, the needs of the community. So, I wish there was better information out there. Um, unfortunately it's not great, but Origin is a great site for also for a lot of education and information and, and about quality care and quality services for young people and particularly their work with Headspace.
0: I absolutely agree. And I think to what you were just saying around get out there and create it yourself. If you I think if you can't find it, and that was one thing with this podcast when we started Hayley and I started in the beginning was we didn't we couldn't find anything that was lived experience informed or lived experience led and actually sort of cut the crap in research and and tried to find out you know what can we be doing as individuals what does this actually mean for us as individuals and uh, we try and do as much as we can, but we we definitely don't even cover every facet or everything that an individual or individuals might experience. And I think that that's incredibly paramount that if, if you see a gap and you know that you can fill that gap back your horse, like there's no time like today because I'm, I hundred percent assure you that there are other people out there looking for that same resource and if it's a social media account, if it's a podcast, we'd love you to join the streaming services um, or if it's a, a blog or uh, a website, whatever it might be, absolutely get out or a YouTube channel absolutely get out there and create it because there needs to be more um, information on what youth mental health is and and what quality care we can. We can receive when needing it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Young people, you're our future. <laughs> Get out there.
0: Yes, <laughs> quite literally and, yes. and
1: metaphorically. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Liz, for joining us today, and um, and we'll link everything in the show notes as well. So, thank you.
1: Fantastic, Sam. It's great privilege. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, and I really admire the work that you're doing. And we hope that we can continue to collaborate, engage and empower young people to thrive.